good evening, everybody. This is Brandon coming to you again with another installment of our Apostolic Pentecostal uh, podcast, um, formerly known as 238 Media. Today, we will be picking up the Second Ecumenical Council of uh, Constantinople. Uh, so please let someone know that we have an Apostolic Pentecostal on God podcast going on, and we are glad to be able to roll. Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media. I just wanted to make sure I took some time to let you know about this great tool that helps me to keep my podcast moving at a really good rate of production. This tool is Anchor by Spotify, and it is probably one of the easiest ways to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a host of other options. It's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free. So, hey, let me know what you think. And as always, it's the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. So, as with previous podcasts that we have done, one thing that you will increasingly begin to notice is that not only are many of the theological uh, conversations that are going to be pushed to the forefront of the empire are not going to be solely based upon theological considerations, but more you are going to see that these councils are going to be the result of intermediary uh, proxy wars, that they're going to be used as a way to push other agendas uh, for political considerations. So we're going to begin to really, of course, look at this a little bit more, uh, which this podcast uh, today is going to deal with. What took place in A.D. 553 at this Fifth Ecumenical Council? And at this council, what you will notice is that the Christian church assembled by decree of the Emperor Justinian, and it was led by Eutychus, who was the Patriarch of Constantinople at that time. Now, this is known as the Second Council of Constantinople uh, because Pope Vigilius of Rome, who had been summoned to Constantinople, against his will, showed his displeasure by taking sanctuary in a church for more than about seven months. And so Pope Vigilius uh, eventually ended his protest by formally ratifying the council's verdict in February of the following year. As a result of this, 14 anathemas or condemnations were decreed by the Second Council of Constantinople. Uh, Really at the root of this, uh, you will find the biblical doctrine of the dual nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as has been stated before, more of these councils are not in essence dealing with how we understand God to exist, per se, like we did in uh, Nicaea in 83-25. But what we are really starting to notice is that most of these councils are 
focusing around what uh, theologians call Christological issues of composition, which the hypostatic union uh, is going to be at the forefront of that. And so the dual nature of Jesus Christ uh, basically teaches, uh, as many of us would agree, even in the oneness Pentecostal world, that within Jesus Christ, he was not 100 percent God, not 100 percent man. Uh, and it bothers me to know what's in when people say 100 oh, percent God, 100 percent man, as if you could be 90 percent God, 90 percent man. But the I believe the most appropriate wording would be truly uh, whatever it is to be truly God. Jesus was that. And whether whatever it was to be truly man, he was that. And so this duality of natures were at the core tenets of how one understands who Christ really was. And to deny Jesus's divine nature uh, really goes against, I think, part and parcel of what the scriptures teaches. Uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, when you go the opposite way, where you say he was just 100 percent divine and there was no humanity, you kind of go into this weird area that I think the Apostle John alluded to in many of his uh, epistles when he would talk about he that doesn't confess that Jesus is coming to flesh is not of God, where you really start to see the more evolved forms of historical Gnosticism, where they taught that uh, the appearance of Christ was really a phantasmic form uh, that he just appeared to arise. And interestingly enough, my personal opinion as it relates to Islam I kind of think uh, that whoever Muhammad was talking to, that it was quite possible that Muhammad maybe had got into a fringe, fringe group of these docetists who had this idea that he was only a phantom. Because when you look at Islam, they teach that it only appeared to be him. But these are just my musings, uh, you know, so do with them as you will. And so what we find is that we're in a very cantankerous situation. And so. The Second Council of Constantinople issued their 14th uh, anathema as an order to silence the false teachers who refused to accept the essential biblical teachings surrounding the person and nature of Jesus Christ. At this time, we find that there was a concept that there needed to be a strict religious conformity to keep the uh, Byzantine Empire uh, pretty much intact. And as a result of this, the Emperor Justinian, as said before, he convoked uh, the Second Council of Constantinople uh, when factions of the church would pretty, pretty much just not agree upon Christ's dual nature. Now, on the offset, this seems as if it was just something minor, but as you could imagine, it could readily evolve into other issues because on one hand, they just addressed the issues of uh, Apollinarianism. Uh, and Nestorianism, which Nestorianism taught that there were two persons in the nature of Christ and Apollinarianism pretty much abandoned the understanding that there was a true humanity uh, that was uh, within the man Christ Jesus doing the incarnation. And so one of the most persecuted sects at this time uh, that were pretty much on the fringe in a lot of groups uh, were called the Montanists. Now, the Montanists were a group of uh, charismatics who uh, some would try to say that Montanists uh, claim to be speaking uh, as the Holy Ghost. Now, a lot of this has been even by church historians who probably would not agree with a oneness Pentecostal understanding would say that, yeah, 
claiming that he thought he was a Holy Ghost, that was probably more propaganda than anything. He probably really didn't believe that, but he probably more when he prophesied, he would say, oh, uh, thus say the Lord, such and such, such and such, probably as we see in many of our apostolic churches, people, when they prophesy, they prophesy in the first person. Uh, and I believe this is a posture of the spirit. I believe it's very much in line with the Old Testament witness, how we see the prophets of old prophesy. But of course, as you will notice is that the guys during this time period were not all the way integral <laughs> in the way that they presented others. And so, uh, the claim as it goes against Mont the Montanists believed that the Holy Spirit had given their leader Montanus new revelation. And now, this new revelation dealt with the personal conduct of uh, individuals rather uh, than how can you say uh, what they believed. Some writers would say that they were actually orthodox. They were just very, very, very charismatic. They were not doing anything unscriptural. They were just they were just really Pentecostal. I mean, <laughs> so uh, in a belief, he was more of a. A heretic is related to method. I'm not sure if it could be really proven uh, that he was so much doctrinally. But as that group was still present during this time, so to let you know the work that Montanus actually had going at the time actually had a lot of influence because even the man Tertullian uh, would later abandon his earlier Trinitarian formulas and adopt the posture of the Montanus, which some have argued that there was a modalistic aspect that were present with the Montanists at that time. And so as to Pope uh, Villagius, uh, Vigilius, uh, opposition to the Second Council of Constantinople, Emperor Justinian threatened to prevent the Pope from returning to Rome unless he agreed to the 14th uh, Anathemas. Now, also what's important to keep in mind as we look at the tension Thus, building around these Christological controversies is still Nestorianism, which Nestorianism was a belief that Christ was two separate persons, one human and one divine, uh, that he had been adopted by, uh, but yet the belief had been adopted by some church leaders. Uh, of course, this was a problem from a theological standpoint. And so at the Second Council of Constantinople, the assembly there reaffirmed their beliefs in Christ's two natures while condemning those who went to the extreme that there were two persons within Christ. And on the other end of the spectrum, which Constantinople really worked to reaffirm its earlier position, they still had to deal with the era of monophysitism. And so the monophysites uh, believed that Christ, Jesus, only had one nature. And this was a teaching, as we know from previous studies, that was promulgated propagated but yet by Cyril of Alexandria. Empress Theodora herself, a monophysite, had urged Justinian to call a council as a political maneuver to discredit the rival Nestorians. Now, as a quick note again, when it comes to Nestorians, there is a some question that I see built around it that people will really wonder, didn't Nestorians really believe what they say he believed? And, I, and I'm not going to go too far into that, but I just want to throw, throw that in there. Justinian, uh, who believed religious conformity would bring the empire back to its glory days, agreed to Theodora's request by summoning the church leaders to Constantinople in 553. And so please notice the emperor's motivation was not Jesus. 
It was unification of his empire. And I think this, as petty as it may sound from a Pentecostal viewpoint, we can't forget that these guys wanted the empire to work in unity. And so in the end, the erroneous teachings uh, that would be seen on either end of the uh, Christological spectrum uh, would be dealt with pretty harshly. And they're going to be condemned in this council and really going to be uh, solidified to a way that I mean, it's going to be no question that if there was any tolerance from the first council of Constantinople, uh, there isn't going to be any uh, tolerance for it from now on. And so some may consider the disagreements among the various factions in Constantinople as a theological hair splitting maneuver. But it is a Christological issue. And I don't think also seeing the political uh energies that were involved on both sides as helping. So as you are going to see, as these councils are going to further uh, evolve and to find themselves expressed, we're going to find that as with most church councils, it's going to become more and more apparent that there are going to be a whole plethora of political motivations that are going to move the uh, prominent voices to push the empire, which essentially is working in tandem as a part of the church at this time to make uh, what they understand to be historic Christology uh, law. So, hey, let me know what you think. Uh, So glad that you've taken the time to come by. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus's name.